Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called What Happened to Carolina Lewis? It was written by Stuff investigative journalist Kirsty Johnston, who lives in Tauranga and joins me now by phone. Hey, Kirsty. Kia ora, Michael. What is your story about? So this story is about a young woman, a really amazing, beautiful, smart young woman who went out um, one night. She went out clubbing with her friends and she never came home. So Carolina Lewis is a New Zealander, but this story takes place mostly in the US. Uh, Tell us a bit more about the setting. Yeah, so uh, Carolina, uh, she was living over there, going to university at Kansas State, where she had a tennis scholarship. And she just graduated, actually. She'd been over in Europe for summer, and she was kind of working out her next steps. And she went to Washington, D.C. to visit some friends there. And they went out, you know, they went for dinner. They went to a club, and just things got really out of hand. Um, And a bunch of really unusual people kind of came into her remit that night and then she ended up um, dying officially it's like an accidental death of a a drug uh, overdose I guess you would call it um, and the police kind of looked into it they they did an investigation but it wasn't very thorough um, in her family's eyes and this story is about stepping through what we know and what we don't know about that night. How did you come across the story? Yeah, so I was aware of the story at the time, obviously, that she died, but the family kept it very private um, for two years while they kind of waited for the police to do the investigation. Like, they really had faith that something, you know, would come of it. And then over time, they just got more and more distraught. Um, And earlier this year, David Lewis, Carolina's dad, emailed me and said, would you be happy to help me? Um, And initially I was like, yeah, I I can, but I actually think you'd be better to find a publication in the States because that's where we want to apply the pressure. Um, And unfortunately that hasn't worked out yet. And so David came back and said, would you write the story? Um, and, And we went from there. One of the things that struck me reading the story well, there were two things. One was how frustrating it was. As we'll hear, you've seen the police file, you've talked to some other people involved. There's a lot of information out there about the circumstances of Carolina's death. And the second thing, which kind of following on from that, was given nothing's really come of the investigation, the appalling situation her family now find themselves in, like frustration probably doesn't begin to cover it, how are they? Yeah, they're really traumatised. I think they're really frustrated um, and they don't understand and nobody working with them, like they have various kind of advocates and professionals working with them and none of them can understand why the police haven't looked more deeply into Carolina's death. And, you know, on the one hand, you can just write it off as this overdose. It was um, actually fentanyl, uh, the drug. Uh, She thought it was going to be oxycodone, I think. But, you know, it was like a really messy, messy time when she took that drug or was given that drug. Um, 
and and I guess the police, you know, in the states, these things happen a lot more frequently than they do here, and maybe they just were like, "This is in the too hard basket." That's how it felt to me, and that's how like a lot of the advocates described it. But when you look at the details, you you as you'll see, you know, when you read through the story, you really do begin to wonder why this hasn't gone further. All right, thanks, Kirsty. Now here is me reading Kirsty's story. What happened to Carolina Lewis? The man who woke up next to Carolina Lewis that morning didn't notice she was dead. When his alarm went off at 8am, Glenn Gibson, a 37-year-old policeman turned nightclub promoter, got up, got dressed and went downstairs to move his car. He was too late. He already had a ticket. Gibson moved the black Mercedes anyway, then took the lift back upstairs to room 916, of the Liaison Washington Capitol Hill Hotel, where Carolina lay face down, not breathing, in the middle of the bed. Gibson later told police that he tried to wake the 23-year-old, but she wouldn't respond. When he rolled her over from her stomach to her back, her face was blue. Gibson said he then called the front desk and asked the clerk to dial 911 and waited. When medics arrived, they reported no signs of life. At 8.22am on September 16, 2019, Carolina was pronounced dead. Her body revealed no evidence of trauma, medical staff said. The rest of the room also told police very little. Carolina's black high heels were on the floor. Her small, tan purse was next to a television, with her credit cards, driver's licence and her makeup inside. There was no indication of violence. The Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for the District of Columbia later found Carolina had died from the combined toxic effects of ethanol and fentanyl, a synthetic opioid used to lace fake OxyContin pills. Detectives investigating the case interviewed several witnesses and pulled phone records, but never found where Carolina got the drug. No charges were laid. By the end of the week, Gibson was back to promoting nightclubs on Instagram. A year later, the police file was closed. Officially, Carolina's death was ruled an accident. But her family and a small group of supporters and advocates who know what really happened that night say her death should be seen as a crime. There are too many questionable people involved and far too many unusual events that occurred the night Carolina died for us to accept her death was accidental. Carolina's father, David Lewis, wrote in an appeal to the Washington, D.C. police in April this year. Lewis said police had failed to follow leads and that a far more thorough investigation was warranted. Where is the empathy for our family, he wrote. Losing a daughter under any circumstances is devastating. This death has turned my family's lives upside down and not seeing any progress with the investigation 
makes our grief even worse. That is why I am asking you for help to ensure that justice is delivered by finding those responsible for Carolina's death. The last time David Lewis saw Carolina was at the US Open in the second week of September 2019. Carolina was working at the tennis tournament, helping to organise players. On September 8, Rafael Nadal defeated Daniel Medvedev in the final. David had flown to New York City to watch. Tennis runs in the Lewis blood. David was a professional player in New Zealand and a coach. His older brother, Chris Lewis, was a Wimbledon finalist in 1983. Both Carolina and her younger sister, Jade, had been playing since they were children in Auckland's eastern suburb of Glendowie and continued after they moved to Hilton Head, South Carolina, when the girls were teenagers. Growing up, I always copied Carolina, and I always tried to follow what she did, Jade says. Because at the table, she was always the funniest. She was always the star of the get-together. The girls spent hours training together and playing doubles in tournaments. We had a billion fights on the tennis courts, Jade says. One time, she launched a ball at my back during doubles. But we were always fine right after. We had a great time together. Jade was the stronger player, with a world junior ranking of 59, but Carolina was talented in her own right. She won a tennis scholarship to West Virginia University and then to Kansas State. I think tennis gave Carol a sense of purpose, her friend and former Kansas State student Cora McGee says. But she was also incredibly intelligent and really good at writing. McGee says while others would take two hours to do an assignment, Carolina would be done in 30 minutes and still get good grades. With her beauty and ability to speak five languages, Carolina should have been intimidating, McGee says. But she was so down-to-earth and friendly. Her heart was gold. That summer, Carolina had graduated with a major in journalism and was planning her next steps. There was no doubt that whatever she chose to do, Carol, as her friends called her, would be a success. In New York, at the tennis, Carolina and her dad had dinner. On September 10, Carolina travelled to Washington, D.C. to stay with friends from her time at West Virginia, including her good friend, Molly Trujillo. The timeline pieced together by police shows that on the night of September 15, Carolina, Trujillo and a group of other girlfriends went to Greifenbar in the central city. It was at Greifen that Carolina met Glenn Gibson, whose group of friends knew some of Trujillo's friends. Gibson told police that's where he and Carolina exchanged numbers. Around midnight, both groups left the club. The girls got an Uber around the corner to another club, Abigail 
which they entered about 20 minutes later. Once inside Abigail, things began to get messy. Carolina's message history shows she was approached by a man pretending to be someone else, a guy she'd been out with the night before and was hoping to see again. She was confused by this, texting the man, There's this guy that keeps pretending to be you, and it's weird. She is seen at the bar talking to two guys with dreadlocks. Around 1am, she loses Trujillo, who wants to leave because she has work in the morning. Carolina wants to stay and see the guy she likes, but she also wants to find Trujillo. Their texts go back and forth until 1.43am. During this time, Gibson calls Carolina twice, later telling police he was trying to help Trujillo, but they can't find her. Then at 1.52am, Carolina texts Trujillo, I'm coming. Carolina texts again straight away, where are you? 30 seconds after, Trujillo replies, I left. At 1.59am, Carolina is seen on CCTV leaving the club. She's wearing a tan dress, her long dark hair hanging down. Behind her is a man in a masquerade mask. The footage, which police eventually recovered from Abigail, show this man had entered the bar about an hour earlier. He was given a pat-down and a bag check, but allowed to wear his mask. He wears dark jeans, a black shirt with a white logo, and white shoes. He has dreadlocks and carries a tan satchel. There's no footage of him inside the bar. The cameras only pick him up again when he leaves with Carolina. As the pair walk by, the security guard gives the masked man a nod and a smile. The man puts his hand on Carolina's arm, steering her towards a car, and they disappear off screen. At 2.20am, Gibson leaves the club and calls Carolina again from the footpath outside. She doesn't pick up. At 2.23am, she calls him back on FaceTime. They speak for 20 seconds. Gibson later tells police Carolina sounded kind of panicked and asked if he would come and pick her up because she didn't want to be where she was. Carolina sends Gibson a pin drop location to Fort Lincoln Drive, about 20 minutes away. Gibson told her he would be 30 minutes, as he planned to talk to his friends on the footpath before leaving. But as her text messages grew more insistent, he began to hurry. 2.27am, Carolina to Gibson. Are you going to come or no? 2.29am, Gibson to Carolina. Yes, you ready? 2.29am, Carolina to Gibson. Yes. 2.36am, Carolina to Gibson. You coming or no? 2.38, Gibson to Carolina. Yes, babe, I'm driving there now. 2.45, Carolina to Gibson. Hurry up. 2.45, Carolina to Gibson. Please. 2.46am, Gibson to Carolina. I'm 12 minutes away, boo. 2.46am, Carolina to Gibson. Okay, hurry, because I don't like this at all. 2.46, Gibson to Carolina. You okay? 
Do I need to hurt someone? 247, Carolina to Gibson. I don't know. I did Oxy. The messages continue until Gibson arrives, with Carolina growing increasingly frantic. She says it's scary, that she is scared, because the guys she's with are fighting. She says she's pretending to be asleep to avoid them. Gibson admonishes her for taking drugs. I'm driving faster now, he says. But when Gibson arrives, he can't see Carolina. She calls him trying to find his car in the dark. As she heads out of the apartment and towards his car, her phone rings. An unknown number. Around 3am, she finally finds him, and they drive off. Gibson says Carolina tells him one of the men was following her, and that the guys at the apartment tried to have sex with her, but she said they weren't her type. After this, They go to McDonald's. She's hungry, she says. Gibson says he's tired and wants to book a hotel room. He says Carolina agreed and asked if he would drop her back to her friend's home later in the day. He agreed. Gibson books the hotel via an app. They arrive at 3.40am. Footage from the hotel CCTV shows them arriving. Carolina holding her shoes in her hands. At 3.44am, Carolina texts Trujillo to say she had a ride back in the morning. In the police file, an officer has written a summary of the hotel footage. Carolina appears unsteady on her feet at times during the video, but remains beside, name redacted, as he checks in. Carolina is rubbing her nose. She holds on to Gibson. She hugs him and kisses him. As check-in drags on, Gibson escorts her to a couch in the lobby to wait, where she sits down. It appears to this investigator, the officer wrote, that Carolina is intoxicated on some substance, drugs and or alcohol. She does not appear sober. As the couple head to the room, the police report says Carolina lets go of Gibson's arm and makes a, quote, demonstrable gesture. Gibson puts his arm around her shoulder, and they walk off camera. Once inside the room, Gibson told police he had a shower. Then he and Carolina had sex. They looked at photos on her phone of her friend and her recent trip to Italy, then fell asleep about 5am. Carolina never woke up. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support.
At first, David Lewis and his wife, Rosaria, put their faith in the police. During the early months of the investigation, they even tell officers they don't need to be updated on every detail, that they understand the detectives need to focus on the task at hand. We remain patient in your professionalism, David Lewis writes to the lead investigator, Christopher McWilliams, on October 28. In early November, some progress is made. Police manage to get the CCTV footage of the masked man from Abigail and publish it on YouTube. They put together a more comprehensive timeline and attempt to identify others who were in contact with Carolina that night. They interview witnesses, including Molly Trujillo and Glenn Gibson. In mid-November, the Lewis family feels there is a breakthrough when police identify where that final call to Carolina's phone came from as she was running out of the apartment on Fort Lincoln Drive. The man's name and almost all the details of detectives' interactions with him are now redacted from the police report, but at the time, the family are told who he is. Larry Holt, a regular at Abigail, who has a criminal history. Holt's record shows that he was convicted for trafficking a teenage girl in 2016, picking her up in Virginia and taking her to Maryland to sell for sex. He was sentenced to five years in prison, but served less. That raises a huge question, says Derek Hurley, a friend David Lewis met through an online support group for parents whose children are victims of violence. Hurley whose daughter was raped by a policeman in Antigua, helped the Lewis family with their appeals to police. Why is a known human trafficker calling Carolina, Hurley says? How did he have her number? Who gave it to him? We thought they should look into that more. In January 2020, police received subpoenaed records of Holt's phone but they're unable to link him to anyone known to Carolina. They also can't work out if his phone was in the Fort Lincoln area that night. Holt refuses a police interview, detectives tell David Lewis. They said he's familiar with law enforcement. He wouldn't talk. Holt did not respond to a request for comment for this article. In March, Detective McWilliams writes in the police file that he is still in weekly contact with the Lewis family. But as time goes on, the entries in the file grow more sparse. At the family's insistence, officers request DNA testing from Carolina's body, attempting to find a link to anyone at the apartment where she took what she seems to have thought was OxyContin. The test comes up blank. In July, McWilliams retires after 25 years' service. It comes as a surprise to the Lewis family. The New Zealand Embassy in Washington sends police a letter requesting a new detective keep them and Carolina's parents informed. The new lead investigator is Jonathan Shell. In September, in a meeting with Shell, two other police officers and their lawyer, the Lewis family are told it's unlikely the charges will be laid. They're distraught. In particular, 
They want to know why Carolina's capacity to consent to sex wasn't made a focus of the investigation, even if the people who gave her the drugs couldn't be found. The police file states she was clearly intoxicated, they argue. That there were drugs in her system was confirmed by the toxicology report. Her blood alcohol level was extremely high. State law in the District of Columbia says a person can't consent if they're incapacitated. But Shell tells Lewis that because Carolina was wearing a party dress and looked okay in the hotel video, it was unlikely a jury would convict. Another of the professionals working with the family, victim advocate Kathy Redmond, thinks this was the wrong decision. There was no way she could consent, Redmond says. They could see that on the video. For the officers to say she was in a party dress, I don't understand that. Redmond says she found the entire case and the police attitude towards Carolina's death extremely frustrating. To me, it looks like she was abducted and drugged. Why were there no charges for anybody? Wouldn't you think you'd want to get to the bottom of this? Why is this laced? Where is it coming from? The Lewis family are left further confused when Shell drops a second bomb during the meeting. Gibson used to be a police officer, he says, in another state. But the detectives don't know why he left. His file is closed. Later, another advocate will help David Lewis request the file. They learn it is 600 pages long, but still can't find out what's inside. Gibson did not respond to questions for this story. For Redmond, the fact Gibson is an ex-cop makes the case even worse. He should have known to get her to a hospital, she says, and didn't. And he hasn't been made accountable. After he finds out about Gibson, David Lewis wants to see the entire police report, so he can see what other information is on record. To do so, detectives say they have to close Carolina's file, It can be reopened later, they say. Lewis agrees. A couple of months later, he receives the documents. He struggles to read them and asks Hurley to help him go through the records looking for points to appeal. I could tell it was really weighing heavy on him, Hurley says. I know how holding it in, being unable to talk to anyone, is rough. It broke my heart watching him. I was just trying to figure out how to help. Despite two appeals from the Lewis family, the file is yet to be reopened. The Washington Metropolitan Police Department did not respond to questions sent to it for this article. It hasn't responded at all to the second appeal letter sent by David Lewis in June this year. That letter raised four points of concern with the police investigation. These were, one, 
the involvement of Larry Holt and how he had Carolina's number. Two, whether Holt was at the nightclub the night Carolina died. Three, the identity of the masked man and the failure to properly promote the security video further than the department's YouTube channel. And four, the lack of interest in whether Carolina had the ability to consent to sex. Hurley believes the police will reply, because they're bound by law. But the lack of communication is unfair. We're in a holding pattern, he says. It's just so disappointing. But I'm really hoping they do think, this is strange, and look into it further. There are too many questions and too many bizarre things. If you look at all the people she met that night, calls from people she doesn't know, the backgrounds, her friend who just met her there, I don't know how they couldn't look into it a bit more. Carolina's friends are still struggling to cope with the loss. A small group from Kansas State attended her funeral in South Carolina in 2019. Molly Trujillo, who was with Carolina at the club that night, has never talked to the Lewis family. She told Stuff she couldn't help with this article, but that Carolina was a once-in-a-lifetime friend. Cora McGee says she was in denial for at least a year. She misses the small things. They used to cook together. Carolina would call her mum, Rosaria, on FaceTime and ask for advice. She thinks of things she wants to tell Carolina almost every day. For a while, she would even text them to Carolina's old phone. I'm still in disbelief that she died in the manner she did, McGee says. It was sad she went out with no dignity. And with the investigation ongoing, it's very frustrating. The Lewis family say their pain is unending. Talking publicly about Carolina's death was a last resort for them. And as intensely private people, a decision they were reluctant to make. We wrestled with it, and still are, David Lewis says. But we owe it to Carolina, and we owe it to future victims of these people. And we feel that we have to do it, to hold these people accountable, so that others won't be targeted. Lewis strongly believes whoever gave Carolina the drugs should be charged with murder. We believe our daughter was killed, and we suffer, like anyone who has lost a child. We just want answers. He goes over and over the details of the case in his mind, every day. He knows almost every piece of the investigation by heart. I'm a mess, he says. I feel like my heart has been ripped out. There's not a minute when I don't think about it. He hates thinking about how Carolina died, but he can't rest. Only justice will bring peace. 
That was What Happened to Carolina Lewis on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Kirsty Johnston and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.